Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 190. The driver is the greatest performance variable. What is the real changeable variable? And it is the loose nut behind the wheel. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah! Have you turned your key and heard that dreaded tick, 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 tick because of a dead battery? No worries. I've got the NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in your glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that will start a dead battery in your car, boat, truck, or RV. It packs a whopping 12-volt, 400-amp starting power and can start up to 20 dead batteries on a single charge. Plus, it has built-in spark-proof technology with reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart your vehicle. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are solid copper for maximum conductivity, and there's a built-in ultra-bright dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS emergency strobe. It's easily rechargeable with a USB outlet, and you can charge your smartphone or tablet while you're on the road. Works on any 12-volt lead-acid battery. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, your battery care source since 1914. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. Today, I am so excited to introduce a very special guest, Peter Krause. Peter, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I am ready for a really fun, fast ride. All right. I love it when my guests come prepared. Awesome. After 25 years as an award-winning historic race car competitor, mechanic, and preparation shop owner, Peter Krause shifted gears to rev up a new career, utilizing the latest GPS and high-definition video equipment to quantify racing driver performance. This intersection of technology coupled with Krause's intimate knowledge of the psychology, art, and science of driving fast propelled him into the top tier of driver coaches, perhaps more accurately, driver performance analysis in North America. Peter maintains a 1,200-square-foot learning facility at Virginia International Raceway, complete with simulators to virtually coach and review data and videos for his students. So, Peter, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Please take a moment and share some more about your history your career, your interest, and of course, your passion for driving cars really fast. Well, thank you very much, Mark. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a great pleasure and a great honor to be invited on the, on the show. Thank you. And it's spectacular because this is such a passionate community, and uh, everybody is an enthusiast. Everybody wants to race. Everybody wants to drive fast. Uh, we're all attracted to uh, exotic and rare and unusual cars. I was a mechanic for, for many years and really, really enjoyed it, but I, I wanted to do something more, and when it came time to begin a second career, uh, as it were, I, I said, what do I really, really want to focus on? And it was working with drivers and, and sports car drivers, mm-hmm. basically folks who wanted to drive high-performance cars in a non-competitive environment like a track day or a driver's education event. Uh, or a uh, club racing venue like SCCA or NASA. 
And of course, my particular focus and love is historic and vintage cars. I think that uh, I started my shop because I didn't have enough money to go racing myself. And I was looking for a way to put in place an infrastructure so that I could go racing. It was a very selfish thing. (laughs) And I really wanted to put my hands on some of the cars that captivated me when I was young. I would go to uh, libraries and read the latest copies of Road and Track and Car and Driver and and look at the beautiful Maseratis and the and the Ferraris that were coming out and uh, and I said I you know I, I may not ever be able to afford one but I want to be around them I want to smell them feel them touch them yeah and so when I came to North Carolina and started working on cars in a in a old Fiat dealership downtown among the tobacco warehouses oh wow from North Carolina I I kept seeing these exotic cars all around town. And I'd, I found a man uh, who ran the local Merrill Lynch office, and he drove a Maserati Ghibli every day to work. Very cool. I summoned my courage up and asked, uh, went into his office one day and said, uh, Mr. Grant, can I take your car and take it down to our shop downtown and change the oil in it? Uh, <laughs> and And he said... Uh, well, I'd like to bring my car down and I'd like to drop it off. And by the way, I want you to change it from an automatic to a five-speed. And after my, after my uh, jaw hit the ground, yeah. I sort of swallowed very hard, found uh, a junkyard of used Maseratis. My friend Kyle Fleming in Virginia Beach mm-hmm. got all the parts I needed and three months later returned the car to him as a five-speed. Wow. And so that was my introduction into the hardcore world of exotic auto <laughs> Introduction by fire. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and what was really fun was um, after I began to get a couple of cars in the shop, word spread. And it's very temperate in North Carolina. So people tend to drive their fun cars frequently. Yeah. And so, so all of a sudden, Ferrari started showing up and... Uh, boxers and Testarossas, and these were when all these cars were new. And um, so I had an opportunity to really develop that business, the repair and maintenance of exotics and uh, and vintage race cars, old Aston Martins and Jaguars and nice. uh, and everything. So it worked out really, really well. And the business kept building and building and building. And finally, my business partner decided that he wanted to hire a whole bunch more people and um, expand his business and expand the building and hire uh, a whole bunch more. And after 25 years, I turned to him and I said, you know what? I, I really like it the way it is. And he said, uh, well, I want to expand. Why don't you buy me out? And I said, well, I don't have the money. So uh, he said, why don't I buy you out? Hmm. That was really a novel idea because I thought I was going to be carted out of there uh, <laughs> on a stretcher and they were going to bring a padlock to the front door and auction everything off because I came in with nothing and I assumed that I was going to leave with nothing. Yeah. And he was very kind and he came from a corporate background and I, it didn't make me wealthy, but it gave me enough money to start this new business, this business that I'm on now. Awesome. It worked out just great Yeah. because when I began doing this, the biggest challenge was that a friend of mine turned to me and said, how are you going to charge 
for things that you have been giving away for free for 20 years. Ah. I I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sure. I haven't really thought about that. Yeah. And the blessing was, it came in the form of Tiger Woods. And and the the reason why that happened was because uh, Tiger let uh, slip in an interview uh, right around the time this occurred that he had a coach and that he relied on a coach and that a coach was good. Mm Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, this gave all kinds of people uh, who were pursuing this avocation, this hobby of driving fast on the racetrack, uh, not the professional, but the, the, the amateurs, the 100,000 people who get on track in this country every weekend uh, in a variety of different venues, people that were enjoying this as a hobby said, you know what, I can get, I can progress more quickly with an outside eye. It wasn't really a download. It wasn't really a a one-way conversation. It was a collective, collaborative conversation between two people trying to solve the same problem. How do you go faster without hurting yourself, without crashing the car, and to have more fun? It's just like you pointed out in your in your Formula Junior experience and and the Peter Lola's experience. The faster you go, the more fun you have. Yes, exactly. You know, I love this story because it displays a really important point, especially for business owners and entrepreneurs or anyone in any capacity of a career or a hobby is if you can seek out a coach, a mentor, a life coach, a business coach, whatever it is, they can provide you with things that you can't see on your own. And that's what I think is great about what you've shared with us and what you're doing. As we continue on your journey, I always like to ask my guests about a success quote. And this is something that's been instrumental in informing your life and your success. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. I know you love to drive, Peter, so take the wheel. <laughs> well, Mark, I'll, I'll tell you the biggest success quote that has resonated and been retained in my memory since the first moment I thought about it was, quote, the driver is the greatest performance variable. Hmm. And I said, you know, what differentiates one car from another car going around the track? Say an identical Formula Ford or a car. I started out in autocross, which was a very inexpensive way to race one at a time against the clock Hmm? in a cone-filled parking lot uh, on Sunday mornings. It was more of a social thing where there would be uh, isolated moments of chaos that lasted for 35 to (laughs) seconds, followed by a bunch of hanging out with wonderful friends and and nice people. And, um, you know, there would be similar cars that would show up, yet one car would go faster than the other. And, And I kept saying, you know, there's no difference. There shouldn't be any difference. And yet the difference was the person that was pushing the pedals and turning the steering wheel. So that when a way that I use to differentiate my preparation shop business and historic racing, focusing on historic racing, was I wanted to create a an atmosphere underneath the tent uh, where a variety of interesting people who got along well and who would pull for each other would come under the tent and, and we would have a good atmosphere. Little by little, working with those folks who were racing against other folks with similar cars it became very clear that with small changes in approach and refining and targeting uh, the concentration to fundamental to best execution of fundamental skills, 
some people could outdrive or beat other folks and extract more performance out of themselves. So when I started this coaching business, I put in the signature line of all my emails, the driver is the greatest performance variable. Mm. And most people that I speak to say, you know what, that is really true. We sit here and talk about tire pressures and we talk about the latest header to put on the car to extract more power. But what is the real changeable variable? And it is the loose nut behind the wheel. <laughs> I love that, the loose nut behind the wheel. Oh, that's awesome. I really enjoyed that. Would you do me a favor and share a story with me that instigated your passion for cars, that pivotal moment as you remember it in your life when you really knew you were a car guy? <laughs> well, it's, it's really strange because I came to this very late. And, and when I relate this story to people, they're always aghast. Uh, I, I say, well, you know, I didn't have my driver's license until I was 20 years old. And they said, wait a minute. You eat, breathe, live, sleep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, What's with that? I was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and I grew up in Philadelphia, and I loved public transportation. I was a train nut, and I'd ride the subway for the sake of riding the subway because it was cool. But when I went to school in New England, I had to get around using a car. And I didn't have a lot of money after the partying was done. <laughs> so what I did was found a rusted out uh, 1967 Volkswagen bus, my first car, and I had a friend that I hung out with at school who had worked summers in an import car repair shop in Boston. And he had this wonderful idea. He said, hey, let's take this motor out of this Volkswagen bus and rebuild it. And I said, well, where are we going to do that? And he says, in your dorm room. Oh, my gosh. And so I said, hey, that sounds great. So we took the motor out of the bus and we carried it upstairs and we started cleaning parts and baths of gasoline uh, in the in the in uh, your dorm room. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh and gosh. That, that that went over like a lead balloon. Yeah. And we banished to the roof of the dorm outside. So putting <laughs> 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 our parts in peace. And I put the thing back together again, and I put it in the car. And the proudest moment I ever had up to that point was we turned the key, and the thing fired right up. And I was like, Oh my goodness, this is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And it might have been a very humble beginning. Uh -huh. You know, I've had my hands in some of the the most extraordinary cars ever made. And when I think back, that was the moment that it all uh, coalesced and congealed in my head. This is what I want to do. Oh, fantastic. My son's in his junior year of college right now, and he's a an RA. And I'll have to ask him, I wonder if he's had any trouble with kids building engines in their dorm rooms. <laughs> <laughs> That's That may be a first. Peter, what I'd love to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and crawl under the hood, get our hands dirty, which you certainly are not afraid of doing after that story about your college days. Would you share with us a huge challenge or even a great failure that you faced in your career? But the most important part of this question has to do with how you overcame that situation. And even more importantly, what did you learn from it? Well, it's very interesting because I think I think my greatest challenge was that I felt as though I tried to differentiate myself from other service providers who looked after rare and unusual cars in my market regionally by saying, you know, I will do anything it takes to make sure that the car is as good as it can be. Mm -hmm. And so I would spend extraordinary amounts of time trying to 
get the car. The Italians have a wonderful saying. It's messa a punto. Mm -hmm. And what that is is to bring to a point. Some of the old Ferrari tuning manuals have this messa a punto. And, and it's really not a thing. It's a uh, you start the car and the car runs perfectly. You gently tip in the throttle and the car moves off from rest smoothly without coughing and hiccuping. It's just where everything works right. Mm -hmm. And the problem was that I would go down rabbit holes and, and really get lost in trying to go the last one-tenth of one percent to make the car as perfect as I could. And then I turned around and I realized, you know, there's no way I can charge this guy a week for setting up his carburetors yeah. uh, on, his, on his 330. Sure. And, and um, so I think that the biggest... Uh, challenge was that uh, I didn't realize that I had to have something left over at the end of the day to keep going. Hmm. I would have done it for nothing. I would have done my job for nothing. I'd still do my job for nothing. Uh, but I realized, um, uh, thanks to my MBA trained partner and my second business partner who came in when I was on my last legs as a business owner about 11 years ago and and it must have been divine intervention because he walked through the door and he said uh and I was all ready to quit I was all ready to chuck it all in and tell my original partner who was a great mentor to me but who had lost interest in the business and lost faith in me mm -hmm. to chuck it to just say you know what I I, I can't make this work yeah, and and my second business partner Cecil Boyd, who's a wonderful, uh, been a wonderful mentor to me. He uh, he's very gifted in areas that I'm not. He loves numbers. He loves processes. He's a very orderly thinker. I am not. And and he came in. He said, "You pay me ten bucks, and I'm going to do due diligence for three months and determine whether this business is worth saving." And I said, "Okay," because what else was I going to do? Right. And so he came in, and after three months, he said, I think we can make this work. <laughs> Wonderful. And he turned to me that January, three months later, and he said, you have one job. We have a transporter going to 12 races, and your job is to fill the 72 spots or the six spots each in that transporter for 12 weekends. And that's your only job is to get that transporter filled for 12 events this year. And I scratched my head and I said, but that doesn't sound very fun. He said, oh, but you pick up the phone and you talk and you love that. So yeah. do it. And I got into it and I generated excitement among a variety of people because I loved the events. I was familiar with the events. They were a wide variety of, event, of events, big showcase vintage events like the, the, the Hawk at Road America and Lime Rock uh, Historic Festival on Labor Day. Mm -hmm. And then there were small events, comfortable events, uh, the pig picking and oyster roast at Savannah, Georgia in December, <laughs> and the Jefferson 500, which at that time was hosted by Brian Redman in May. And so, so he just said, look, you, we're going to strip you of all of the extraneous distractions you have and we're going to put you in charge of getting one thing done that will ensure our success perfect and, and, and so i was able to do that and in 15 months we turned around uh 12 years or 14 years of losses and uh and it turned into a really really good thing oh wow fantastic story thank you for sharing that that is absolutely wonderful let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum and you may have 
already shared that a bit with this story, but I'd love for you to share an aha moment in your career, a time when you realized that an idea or a concept that you came up with was really going to work. And tell us the steps you took to turn that aha moment into your success. I didn't really have the luxury of time or a lot of backing to get my current venture off the ground. And the difficulty with the current venture was that it was very uh, tech, it was very technology centric. It required the, the, the purchase of the latest in computers and a number of relatively expensive logging devices and, and video recorders. Mm-hmm. And it required that I run the business uh, efficiently enough so that I had something left over at the end of the day so that I could go forward, so that I could replace this equipment, move forward. But I, I was uh, struck by something, again, that my, my partner said. She said, that, uh, she said, look, it's very simple. If there is no margin, you have no mission. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said, you know what? I know what my mission is. So I, I want a margin. I, I need something left over at the end of the day because I want to do this so badly and I want to do it so well that I have to be uh, sufficiently successful in areas that I haven't paid attention to before. Mm-hmm. And so where the aha moment was uh, occurred was when I, I said, okay, I've got enough, enough of a nest egg here that I can uh, spend the money wisely, move forward. And uh, two or three months later, I was at the racetrack every day, just putting myself in front of, of folks and shaking hands and saying, hey, look, if, uh, if you need some help, I'm here. This is what the program is. Uh, in the beginning, I started out charging uh, not much money to a whole bunch of people. And mm-hmm. it ran me ragged and the other people, the people that were hiring me weren't getting what they wanted. And then I cut it down and raised the prices. Then I cut it down and raised the prices until finally... Uh, I was charging what I thought was was a, f- a lot of money for mm-hmm. what I was doing. But the aha moment was people were saying, you know what? The reason I'm coming to you is because I've had coaches. I've had instructors before. And they stand on the corner of the, of the racetrack with their clipboard. And they write things down. And how many times can I listen to more gas, less brake? <laughs> or, or how many times can I hear, you got to hit the apex? Yeah. I need more than that. And, and I was able to give them more than that. And the aha moment was when I knew the thing was going to go was at the end of the second year, I had recognized people who I looked up to and who were mentors to me, people like Bruce McGinnis, who is an icon at Skip Barber Racing School. And a number of other people come up to me and say, you know what, you've really got this thing down and this is something very special and this is something that nobody else is doing and this is the future. And I said, yeah, it's the future. And that was seven years ago. So Very cool. Very it's cool. Really, really amazing. Yeah, fantastic. How about proudest moments? I'm sure you've had many, but is there one that stands out you could share with us in your career? I have two that are very similar and it, it both uh, they both deal with drivers who one driver who is very well thought of uh, again who has uh, 50 years uh, 55 years of racing experience but is advanced in age and uh, yet he races frequently 
his lady races frequently. He has a m- number of cars that he races during the weekend. And it was surprising because he approached me early last year and he said, look, I'm interested in working with you. There has to be something to this technology stuff. Mm-hmm. He says, I don't know how you're going to be able to teach me much, but I have seen what you have done with other people who I didn't think were very good, and now they're winning races. So I want some of that. Mm-hmm. And we got together in April of last year for the first time at the Walter Mitty Challenge, and we worked together seven times last year. And it culminated in him uh, winning his feature race overall at the at the Monterey Reunion uh, after qualifying third in, in one of the smallest engine cars in the field. And uh, I would have to say that the personal satisfaction that I get out of seeing old dogs learn new tricks <laughs> and yet also people who started out going so gently in powerful cars get to the point where their shops are starting to pull for them and and give extra attention to the car because they know that this person has the capability of of doing well uh it's just spectacular it uh, really is it's a whole motivational force a rising sea floats all boats and so all of a sudden everybody the shop owner the prep the the guy who's doing the mechanic even down to the guy who's checking the tire pressures is pulling for this driver and the simple work that we do together allows the driver to boil things down to the simplest possible task executions and when they go out and they do those they win wonderful very rewarding that's awesome let's have a little bit of fun here would you share with me your first really special car and perhaps you have a memory about that vehicle you could include well, <laughs> again, I came from humble background, so at least working on cars and my my car progression. I have a number of interesting cars now, and and I've always been an Italian car fanatic. The car, uh, the the special car, the first special car for me was was a Fiat One Thirty One. This was a very simple, very inexpensive. Didn't have a great reputation in terms of reliability or electric, electrical function. But when I bought my first Fiat 131, uh, Walter Rural had just won the World Rally Championship in one of these cars, backed by the huge uh, financial might of Fiat and the desire for them to win the World Championship over Audi and a number of other companies. And the idea of this simple, inexpensive, stamped steel four-door sedan with a twin overhead camshaft engine and a five-speed transmission and decent disc brakes at the front, wailing through the forest absolutely sideways at crazy speeds was something that just captivated me. And I traded my Volkswagen bus for uh, this Fiat 131, and I actually had several, but the first one had rusted out rockers. It had lived in, in Massachusetts, and it was not a good example but it spoke to me, and I used to drive that car at speeds you know that make me shudder now. But <laughs> uh, but but I loved that car and the noise that it made and the feeling it made, and I could relate to what I was seeing on the television screen when Walter Rural was blasting through the forest, and Michelle Mouton, who was the most beautiful fast lady in the world, was driving one of these. 
and she was who I had a crush on. <laughs> and, and so it was really, really cool. And, and, and here I was driving a car just like theirs. Yeah, very cool. Those cars are interesting because they've, they've got that boxy shape of the 510, the 2002, very much those same simple lines, yet they went on to such greatness in they racing provenance. So. They did. And, and, and you know, it's funny because I, I had a 2002 TII after that, and I really, really enjoyed that car. That was, that's, a, that's a car that got away for sure. But but those sedans were really, really fun. Yeah. Would you say when we move to this next question about seller's remorse, is that TII the one that got away that you wish you could have back in your garage? No. No? Oh, there's another one. Okay. <laughs> I had an opportunity to 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 buy a, uh, a Maserati Ghibli Coupe. Ooh. That was a project, and I was able to get it running and driving, and I, I drove it around and really enjoyed it. It was really a lot of fun. Then I had an Aston Martin DB4 that had rusty floors, and I'd drive it around. It had dead paint on it. And, uh, and then I had an Aston Martin uh, DB24 Mark III. Oh, my gosh. The 24 Mark III was owned by a, a Duke student who, who came down, and I, he, he made me a deal to, uh, to sell it to me. And, and I paid him uh, part of the money and drove it for, I don't know, 15 months and uh, he decided in the middle of the deal that he he uh, wanted the car more than he wanted the rest of my money, and uh, and so he he took it back and I I missed that car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, boy, you've had some nice machinery in your garage. How about current projects? Is there something you're working on today that really has you excited and fired up? In terms of of car projects, I have uh, a, a couple of wonderful small displacement cars. I have a Giulietta Spider Veloce race car that's been a race car since new and I'm sort of gently putting that back together to try to reintroduce into VSCCA Vintage Sports Car Club of America competition in the Northeast mm-hmm. and then I have uh, a, a car that I've owned for over 30 years a, uh, a Fiat Abarth Alamano Spider oh wow and um, and I love little cars I, I my first race car was a Fiat 850 Spider and the reason why it was a my first race car was because I worked in a Fiat dealership, and the Fiat dealership had been around so long that I could walk into the back of the parts department and pick off the shelves almost everything new I needed to build my first oh, race. Oh, how nice. And that was really helpful. But the Alamano Spider I've had for a little over 30 years, and uh, my partner and I, uh, Lynn and I, went on the New England 1000 in uh, tour in New England uh, a couple years ago, and we had a really good time. They have some speed trials uh, in the middle of, of that, and I was able to thrash E-types and 300 SLs and autocrosses with this little 750cc pipsqueak of a yeah, car. Yeah, very cool. I love that. And, uh, and so I'm trying to bring that car back uh, up to snuff and, uh, and, and use it a little bit more. Oh, sounds like fun. Now, here's a very introspective question for you, Peter. If Peter Krause was a car, what kind of car would he be and why? <laughs> Well, you know, that is the toughest question for any automotive enthusiast, especially with with one who has interests as varied as I do. But I would have to say that if I uh, were a car, I would be a Mercedes 300 SEL 6.3. Oh, my goodness. That's one big car. And that that's <laughs> a big car. Unfortunately, uh, I'm big. I'm, I'm trying to get a little bit smaller. But, yeah, we uh, all are. <laughs> But, but the, you know, the 300 SEL 6.3 is a very classy car. And I really think a lot of the way those cars were built, it's roomy, it's comfortable. 
but it has a performance edge uh, that is completely unexpected. It's a car that when you push your foot down on the gas pedal, leaps forward, even though, you know, its, it's girth is, is significant. And um, I think I have a lot, of, uh, a lot of people who don't know me uh, walk up to me and, and say, you know, you don't look like you raced cars. And I say, well, you know, you don't have to look like it to do well. And, uh, <laughs> and so that's, that's been a lot of fun. Very cool. So, Peter, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, here's a little something for the Cars Yeah listeners. Do you love vintage cars? Then go to CarsYeah.com and get a free copy of the fantastic Filler Up book. It's a full-color ebook filled with fuel filler fun with over 60 color photographs of vintage cars plus inspirational quotes from some of the most famous automotive enthusiasts of all time. Simply go to carsyad.com and click on the free book button on the homepage. Download your free filler-up book today at Cars Yeah. All right, Peter, we're back, and we're entering the last lap. And you're a racer, you know what that means. The white flag is out. Time to really put our foot down. And this is when I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready? Yes, sir. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? The best automotive advice I've ever received was, as a prep shop owner and as a mechanic, always treat every car, uh, every special car that you drive on the racetrack that's not yours, like a gun waiting to go off. (laughs) Uh, Basically, be so careful with these treasures, with these uh, jewels that you don't have uh, the ability to, uh, you you don't allow the cars to uh, sustain any damage. Yes, great advice. Would you share one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success? I think the personal habit that I have is I have an insatiable curiosity. Mm -hmm. I have an interest in lifelong learning. I don't believe the book is ever closed. I don't think that, uh, uh, that anyone ever stops learning new ways to do things. And I wake up every morning thinking that. Perfect. I know there are a lot of resources out there these days, but is there one in particular you would share with the Cars Yow listeners? Maybe it's a website or a blog that you receive? Since my particular area of interest is extracting uh, more intelligent discussion, discourse, uh, a spreading of knowledge about how to drive well and quickly and safely, I would have to say that uh, the number one resource that I direct people to is Ross Bentley's Speed Secrets Weekly, which is a very inexpensive weekly newsletter that is uh, sent out uh, to to several thousand people every week. And it's got wonderful tidbits and terrific uh, guest columnists that change every week for a different perspective and a different subject. And it's a great resource for all drivers who decide to, uh, whether it's non-competitive or competitive driving on track, Speed Secrets Weekly is uh, the number one. Absolutely. I received that as well, and Ross was a guest here on Cars, yeah, and it is a fantastic resource for sure. Would you share one book that you've read in the past that you think our listeners should set their eyes to? For Driving Basics, the number one resource has to be a book that was written more than a decade ago, almost two by Carl Lopez and the whole staff at Skip Barber Racing School, and it's called Going Faster. Mm-hmm. And it is a wonderful book, and it is something that I 
uh, often send as a complimentary copy to new clients that I work with just to reacquaint themselves with best practices and the basics. It is a great book. It's in my library, and it was given to me when I started doing some vintage racing. It is a fantastic resource. I'll remind our listeners that you can find all these resources that Peter shared with us at carsyad.com slash Peter Krause. And Peter's last name is spelled K-R-A-U-S-E. All right, Peter, it's time for the checkered flag. And this last question can be a real doozy. If you could only have one collector car in your garage, but money's no object, today I'm going to buy you whatever you'd like. And I'll include race car if you want to make that part of the, the deal here. What would that one vehicle be and why? Well, you know, I keep thinking of uh, you can always uh, sleep in a car, but you can't drive your house. <laughs> yes. So I think I think I wouldn't pick a race car because I'd, I'd want to experience it more often. Mm-hmm. So the, the one car that has captivated my whole being is the Ferrari 250 GT Lusso. Ooh. The Lusso was described very early on, even by Enzo Ferrari himself, as a ladies' car. But I had a, a very early mentor, uh, the head of the Ferrari Club of America track committee, Watts Hill Jr., mm-hmm. who entrusted me with uh, with two Lusos that he owned. One that was originally owned by Chuck Jordan, the, the chief of design at GM. And I got a chance to drive that car a great deal, and I fell in love with it, and it has never left me. And if I won the lottery, that is what I would buy tomorrow. Ah, fantastico. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) Well, Peter, you've taken me on a great ride around the track today, and I knew you would, and I've really enjoyed your stories, and I want to thank you for sharing so much with me today. Would you give our listeners one parting piece of guidance before you drive off down the racetrack in that Ferrari 250 GT Lusso? Well, Mark, I think the most important thing to realize is that we can always get better. Uh, We are doing this for fun. I think that the culture has changed. Um, The culture of life, uh, living, has changed in the last several decades, much more serious now. But I think the most important thing about cars and enjoyment of cars is having fun. And I think as long as people remember that and follow their passion and take a deep breath and enjoy it, We'll all continue smiling. Perfect. And what's the best way for listeners to learn more about you and what you're doing? Well, the best thing is my website is www.peterkraus.net. Uh, my personal Facebook page and my LinkedIn public profile. And uh, on my website, I do have a schedule of events that I attend. Uh, fortunately, my business is such that I'm uh, already taking dates uh, for 2017 races. So oh, wow. I've got a nice group of, of people that I work with. Uh, but the biggest part of my business that is uh, expanding now is the equipment sales, helping people understand how uh, a variety of this new technology can be used to help them coach themselves. And I spend a lot of time uh, and provide many resources on my website and elsewhere to allow people to uh, use this new, relatively inexpensive, relatively easy-to-use technology to make themselves better drivers, quicker and safer. Wonderful. Listeners, you can find links to everything at carsyad.com slash Peter Krause. Just put Peter in the search box. His show notes page will pop up, and you can find links to everything that he shared with us today. 
Thank you, Peter, for being so generous with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences and journey with me and the listeners. It's been great fun. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.